0: Okay, this is a great little exercise. Um, So this episode is taking place um, in collaboration with Jonathan Ruma, sort of. Um, He's laid out the challenge this morning of seeing whether or not you could talk about a topic for 30 minutes with no preparation. So guess what? Um, You guys are going to be subject to that experiment. Um, Right, so um, I'm going to choose uh, something I probably have to do with... Other people, anyway, but it's a good little preparation exercise, and in any event, people are asking for this, and that's the idea of creating a startup using modern entrepreneurial techniques. Um, now, what the heck do I mean by that? Traditionally, the startup ecosystem has usually revolved around the idea of um, doing some market research, possibly doing a little bit of test marketing, then moving into a kind of development phase, if you like, very rarely fully validating the idea because all you've got is the market research to go on. And this is often tied into a lot of different funding streams. The market research typically might be funded from either your own pocket or possibly the odd, uh, uh, let's call it uh, entrepreneurship funding streams, which really existed in, especially in the UK, exist in areas like. Uh, or organizations like Business Links um, and the Business Growth Hubs as they've now become. The main issue with that though is that there's never been an adequate uh, method of supporting people from the transition from test market into development and actual product. Not only that, typically test marketing budgets were never enough to fully cover the possibilities that they'd potentially unleashed or possibly even um, misplaced. So the, the net result is a lot of people started to get dissuaded from that idea. Probably about 10 years ago now, the idea of lean startups started to gather some momentum, especially with the release of Eric Rieser's, um somewhat influential book on the topic. The idea behind it is actually to to split away from these two kind of, let's call it, bigger ideas of creating a kind of test market for small businesses or creating entire products for larger corporates um, and finding this, I'll call it happy medium, between uh, the idea of building a product and just test marketing it, if you like, uh, or test marketing your offering. So the Lean Startup idea actually started to use slightly more scientific methods, or in fact, substantially more scientific methods than some with a view to building what's called a minimum viable product, the smallest functional part of a system, usually operating a um, a uh, primary scenario, if you like, the path you want people to follow, and then uh, building out from there. So the idea is to throw that out into the market, see if people are actually interested in it, would they buy, And if so, you then invest the cash, invest the effort and time and energy in building out the rest of the product, Um, whilst also always being aware of what the market is doing. And that's an important point. So for those of us that were working in the lean enterprise space before Eric Reese got into it, one of the things we found was that the book was really well presented, but it lacked a lot of, um, I'll call it the fundamental scientific principles that a lot of us have been working on since then. And one of those is the fact that you've got to be prepared to analyze your data and experiment to try and identify, sorry, identify, try and find answers to questions that you yourself have. The idea of validation, if you like. So while the idea of validation was certainly presented in Lean Startup, it was not presented in a way that allowed people with slightly less scientific rigor or who are new to this area to develop effective experiments. Um, so you started to see people misapply Lean Startup techniques. So one of the main cycles, if you like, within the idea of Lean Startup is the, was what's called the build, measure, and learn cycle. The idea is you build a small part of that product, the MVP we talked about before. You then p- find a way of measuring the actual um, result you want to see and then learn from that measurement, measurement rather. What that typically involved is you'd find, in the case of software and tech especially, is you would find a particular type of problem. You would then build something to solve that problem. You would apply something like Google Analytics to it, especially if it's web-based. Analyze the results of that, uh, let's call it experiment, that validation exercise, and then learn whether or not your product actually is any good with a view if necessary to pivoting away from the product once you or the product idea once you've got enough information that it, it actually isn't going to work. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons because what that does is it allows individuals and small companies and small groups within larger companies to evaluate an idea without having to resort to slightly cumbersome proofs of concept or without having to resort to massive budgetary um, uh, and project uh, initiation exercise, i.e., the, the typically authorization of funds, etc. cetera, et cetera. Um, A lot of this stuff can be done certainly within uh, most delegated authority thresholds within large corporates. So, for example, if you've got a fifteen thousand pound limit before you have to go and ask finance for cash, um, then actually your your departmental head can probably authorize um, a, a two thousand five hundred say, a two thousand five hundred pound or dollar spend on you know, this exercise, this research exercise. However, um, one of the things Reese neglected to talk about was actually how do you come up with these validation ideas in the first place. Um, And typically, it's it's not too dissimilar to the kind of ideas you might just actually have. You'll just say, okay, well, um, I think this would be a good idea to have an X, Y, Z. Or I have a process that does this at the moment. What is the pain point I'm trying to solve? Why do I feel so much pain at this point in the process? Is there something I can do to solve it? So typically startups develop around that idea, which is great. But what they don't effectively do is actually ask the question they want to evaluate. What they do is they ask the question as if their evaluation has come back true. And scientifically, this is a fundamental breach. One of the things we talk about a lot in the scientific world and and applying scientific principles to lean enterprise is the idea of the null hypothesis. The principle of a null hypothesis is actually you should not go into an, a, a situation assuming you will definitely get this result and this will be the outcome you want and you know exactly why it's happening. In fact, you should start from exactly the opposite position, i.e. your null hypothesis should be something like, okay, if I develop an app to um, to optimize uh, the cleaning of my house via my IoT devices, then it will make it will not make any difference to my life whatsoever. I still have to do whatever. And what that does is create that baseline, that what's called a falsifiable statement. And that falsifiability is central to every scientific experiment that you've ever seen run. Uh, because the scientific the, the falsifiable statement effectively means that your experiment is now able to determine whether or not you have achieved what you've set out to achieve as a a a business case if you like because if you are not able to disprove your null hypothesis then effectively you've said your experiment has um does not prove that your let's call it your business case will actually be um, productive and as a result you should pivot at this point pivot away or change the design or try a different experiment And that falsifiability, let's talk very briefly about that. That falsifiability is central to every scientific experiment because that's the thing that develops the control groups. So if you try to test, this typical example is, you want to test some uh, new medication, new medicine, or new treatment. What you'll typically have is a control group, and that control group will be given a placebo. That placebo and that control group was built around the idea of representing the null hypothesis. The test group is effectively the alternate hypothesis test, if you like. So, if you've got a situation where the medicine, well, the placebo group comes back with a 40% success rate anyway, and it's just a sugar pill, then what you're looking to try and do is determine whether or not the 41% success rate in the test group is actually statistically significant or not. Is that statistically significant change, sorry, or not? And that's where statistical methods come in. The idea that you have to find a confidence interval in all these types of experiments, if you like, and then determine where, say, the 95th or 99th or 99.9th percentiles actually are, and ensure that the result you get from the test group is outside that boundary, either in one direction or the other. The idea behind that is again showing that actually chance has no way of influencing my um, experimental results. And the same thing applies to business. So if you were to, for example, um, map out a new product and you put just a landing page up with a button click and that button click takes you to a quote-unquote payment screen or would do, then you can gauge interest in your product through a very simple mechanism, put a landing page up, host it in S3, put a domain name on the end of it, stick a Cloudflare SSL certificate on the end of that. And then you have yourself quite a very, uh, well, in fact, a very small testable hypothesis. And that is, is there enough interest for people to actually click on this button to buy this thing that I'm selling, buy this widget or buy this book or buy this um, podcast if I was to launch it like <laughs> The net result of this is you then have a starting point. Your next experiment will compare itself to your last experimental result. So, in the event that you've dis- you've not been able to disprove your uh, null hypothesis, then the previous um, winner, let's call it, of an A/B test will remain in situ. Will remain your champion. If it did, if you then find that your test results ha- or your verification exercise has found. That the new incarnation, the new MVP, say, of your product actually increases sales or increases customer value. Ideally, you can then pivot to use that. So, in essence, what you're doing is you're always finding your little niches. If you like, by an exercise of of continuous experimentation, and that continuous experimentation itself ties into the idea of continuous improvement. Uh, And of course, if you're from a tech background, that should start to sound familiar, because then you're doing continuous delivery and continuous deployment all the time. So great, you've now got your development team working, you've got your analysis team working, etc. But there's also one key strategic thing to consider. And that is, the more specific the items on your validation board, and I'll explain what validation board is in a minute, the more, um, uh, the sorry, the less likely they are to find the niche earlier in the process. So let me cover the idea of a validation board first and I'll come back to what I meant by that statement. A validation board is just a board of of ideas to start with. It has a number of columns in them and each column represents the state of that idea. Um, Typically, each idea represents something you might want to test. And it's usually, of course, and almost always, in fact, aligned to the the actual product that you're trying to create within this MVP. Um, Or even the MVPs themselves. It will ask a question using an null hypothesis ideally. It will get a result out of it. And that might knock some of the other ideas off the the board. But equally, it can also create a priority ordering of those ideas once you've managed to find something that's successful. The problem is not all ideas are created equal. Some of them are too specific. It's too niche. And that's like trying to fire a dart... a dartboard somewhere in the house. If you don't know where it is, you can't aim the dart. So what you've got to consider is the specificity and the generalization, sorry, the generalizability and specificity of the particular hypotheses that you have, that you come up with. Because and the analogy I use a lot is that there's a lot of uncertainty at the very beginning of any entrepreneurial exercise. A lot of uncertainty. You don't know who your market is. You don't know what products they like. You don't know who they are. You don't. You don't know anything about them. Each exercise that you do gains you actually quite a knowledge, a lot of knowledge early in the process. And you can and the way to kind of model this is imagine you've got um, three coins. At the very beginning of the process, you know that getting three heads will be the thing that actually makes you, or hit, hit, allows you to hit the jackpot. You get you hit the jackpot again get the three heads. The chance, uh, but you've, you've also got to spend your money to, t- to have a go. So, the chance of you hitting three heads at the very beginning of the process is one in eight. So each head or tail is two options, and there are three of those two options. is so two to the power of three, that's eight possible scenarios and the one you want is only one of those the concern you then have is okay how do i invest my cash in this if you're sensible um or in fact let's go back probably 20 years and let's talk about how it was done then cash investments would be put in at the very beginning to say okay this is your thing um and it's potluck it's basically one in a chance at the very beginning that the amount of money that they put in will actually return anything so by that point, a lot of companies and a lot of startups used to burn through their money and find that they had no cash now to actually chase the remaining options. So one example of that is imagine you've got you put £10 on the idea that you're going to get three heads um, and you will get say oh, £80 return at the end of it. What you'll typically look to do, or what they used to do, was actually flip all three coins. You put £10 down, you flip all three coins. And, then you, and the, ch- the chances are, realistically, that um, actually you're not going to get your three heads. There are seven out of, there's a seven out of eight chance that you won't. So that means you, you are you have a seven out of eight chance to lose your £10. And that creates a, a, an environment for what's called the value at risk, i.e. the amount of money that you're putting down against the probability that that's, uh, it's going to go wrong creates the, the actual impacted value that you're likely to lose in any one trial or any combination of multiple trials. So, for example, if you were to run eight of these, you'd expect to win um, and, and put ten pounds down in each. That means you've spent eighty pounds, and you're likely to get a return of ten pounds in each of those cases because there are eight scenarios and, and only one of them you'd expect to to, to return. So, to like, that's an eight eight. So, you put the ten pounds down, you get eighty pounds from only one of them. But actually, that leaves you with only a maximum of ten pounds up, and there's still a very good chance you could lose that. And that ten pound, by the way, was your your initial investment. So. Obviously risk diversification is one aspect to this, because of course the more aspects you or more items you have in your portfolio, the less likely you are to go away with nothing. Um, but you have to A, spend more cash, and B, it's not a very intelligent way to go about it. So since um, the, the sort of 30-year-old thinking has started to dissipate, one of the things you see a lot these days is the idea of staged funding rounds. So seed funding, series A, series B, C, and beyond. And there's a good reason for those. Let's go back to our £10 analogy and I'll illustrate what that is. You start with £10. Instead of flipping all three coins, you then say, okay, I'm going to give you um, £2 only to flip the first coin. I'll give you £3 to flip the second and I'll give you £5 to flip the third. So the person says, okay, right, great, I'll, I'll, that seems okay. So I'll take this, I'll take this offer. You flip the first coin. You spent two pounds on it so far. The person who's flipping the coins, the founder of the company, the startup, then sees it comes up tails. At this stage, you absolutely know that you're not going to get three heads, because the first one is a tail. It doesn't matter if you get heads for the next two of the realities you know. But the actual amount of cash that you've lost is only £2. So the investor now has £8 that they otherwise would not have had. And crucially, because they've built this relationship with the individual uh, founder, one of the things they can look at doing is saying to the founder, fa- or the founder can, to- can look at and say, OK, well, tell you what, I'm going to pivot to a slightly different thing. Is this OK? By you, would you be interested in investing in this? We know this doesn't work, so our pivot takes us in this direction. And the investor might very well say, okay, yes, well, fair enough. I've still got £8 I'm willing to invest. I still need to kind of keep my portfolio topped up. So, therefore, I will go with this. But again, I'm only spending £2, not the three or the five. And this process can continue. So, in essence, for your £10, if everything fails, you have only, so in fact, you have run five experiments for the same amount of cash that you would have previously just run one in. And this is an important revelation if you like for a lot of people especially investors it's the fact that actually even within the same portfolio if you can generate or reduce the level of risk exposure you have by simply segmenting them into milestones, let's call them I don't know something like minimum viable products then actually your risk your, your, so you're more likely to get more for your money and you can cover the more within your portfolio diversify the portfolio cover more within your portfolio for the same amount of money. Not only that, if you structure the investment correctly, you can take whatever those quote-unquote failures are and then split them off within the fire sale to try and return more of your cash. In addition, the founder themselves has the ability to go back to um, UK government and say, well, actually, we've tried this and this hasn't worked. And UK government in particular have run these things called R&D tax credits effectively allowing you to claim back up to 260 sorry to claim back to offset up to 260% of the value of the investment uh, sorry investment that the value of the research against their corporation tax bill. So there are schemes around the European Union and the UK to allow this sort of thing to happen. But in essence it all goes back to the idea of using a minimum viable product. That minimum viable product is the smallest thing that you can get working that people will buy. And the, uh, another benefit of it, an important benefit of it, is the fact that the MVP should be your happy path, should be the thing that 100% of people will have to go through before any other path can be activated. Now, that's quite an abstract statement. So let me give you uh, the way I represent this to other people. And that is the idea of selling something. If you walk into a shop, you cannot return an item you haven't bought. Not only that, you cannot... Um, activate a voucher that you haven't got. Each of those are secondary scenarios, what we call secondary scenarios or unhappy paths in some cases, though they don't necessarily have to be unhappy, they could, they, but they would have to have a primary scenario that's taken place first. So when you're trying to create an online shop, for example, the thing you really want people to do is buy. That's where they get the value and that's where you get the the value and the reward as well. So the thing you should concentrate on is always the idea of a happy path, the primary scenario. But that primary scenario at the very beginning of the process has to be general enough that you can allow this testing of cases that we mentioned earlier with an awareness and a sympathy to the investment that you yourself have got from someone. Um, What we typically do, what find ourselves doing at Excelsis a lot, is recommending that people actually don't work on the whole project at once think of it as a series of steps that allow them to try and gain money from intermediate steps to allow them to fund further um, investment or development labs. and that is the what we that is basically the idea of drip funding the idea of drip funding is t- going back to our little coin example is you've invested 10 pounds as an investor in a founder who's got to flip three coins At no point have you actually ever invested any more money than that. Because in the event of a success, you're hoping that your first flip of the £2 will return a head. But if the founder can then sell that head for £2, what they've effectively done is topped up the total uh, investable cash fund available to them by replenishing the cost already. And that's happened earlier than they otherwise would have done to go live with, which you would have, remember, taken three coins to do. And that was from a, that's called a general step that's found a first useful feature. Once you've, as, was, as an investor, that's actually an ideal thing to see because whilst you're then flipping the other two coins, your first coin is still delivering value so imagine let's walk this through again imagine you start again with the 10 pounds and this time you're successful with the first coin flip the investor has spent two pounds with your first coin flip that coin flip has re- has returned two pounds in its own right so the founder is now square effectively that opens up series a say of a three pound that three pound investment i mentioned because the first head has been activated the second coin is now flippable but the investor has actually instead of spending just 5 pounds and getting nothing they've spent 5 pounds and got effectively 2 back for or 2 bits of value back from uh, within their investment. So in essence their portfolio is now worth 7 not 5. The second coin is flipped. At the same time that second coin is flipped that first coin it returns another 2 pounds. So the investor is now at 9 pounds. In the event that second coin has failed, the whole investment, quote-unquote, that otherwise would have failed in the old model, but now the investor has £9 when they would have otherwise had 5 In the event it's successful, and that £3 now returns, say, another £3 just to make it simple, even though it's a lot better, bigger than this usually, that £3 coupled with you, the new £2 give you £5 of return, with the original, the first two pound lot that you got, which is now seven pounds of return for what was only five pounds worth of investment in total, so that's now quite interesting because actually, even without spending all your money, you've suddenly got what is in essence a forty percent return on your original investment. So, as an investor and as a founder, it's a good idea to continue with this idea, this kind of let's call it small scale experimental thinking but start from a general position and narrow down to your niche. No niche has ever been found by throwing um, a dart at a haystack to find that needle. It was found by methodically say, scanning the whole haystack and then chopping down the risks accordingly. The example of the coin flip is one example of that but actually the idea of binary chops that people might have heard of so splitting the search space into two areas actually is also quite useful so with that in mind um i'm going to kind of wrap up this um this podcast with probably we'll four minutes left um just to talk a little bit about um uh, that will summarize basically what we gone going, going on to talk about so one thing you should do is is obviously try and Reduce the size of the experiments that you run at the beginning. Make your shops um, general enough, but also with a view to experimenting on certain points to try and find the winners in each case. Make those experiments with a view that they are effectively going to fail. Think of them like they're going to fail, but you'll work your hardest to disprove that failure position. Always run, always analyse your results side by side. Make sure you use solid statistical techniques to do so. And also keep doing it. You've got to keep repeating this experimental point. And what that naturally will do, if you focus on this, and what that will naturally do is, is chop down that space you're looking through anyway. And crucially, the investor will be happy enough to, if they're getting returns out of some small portions of it, to keep funding it as long as it keeps making its cash. Because as, a, as, a, as an investor, you've got to kind of consider this um, the, the, the breadth of the portfolio you have. Um, right, so I'm hoping that. My little chat with, uh, my, well, this cup of fireside chat, if you like, um, has satisfied Jonathan's um, uh, question. Um, I might continue with these. I don't know, frankly, but certainly what I will be doing is chopping this up possibly and putting it into a slightly better format. But as a as a topic to go start to finish, it might might. Um, work out quite well. Um, if you look at try and uh, do more of these, retweet this out, and I'll probably I'll I'll see if this is worth uh, doing more of. Um, I'll try and make it a little bit more uh, concrete. But of course, this is great as an experiment. Of course, as a challenge from Jonathan. Thanks very much for for um, setting it. Appreciate that. Um, if there's any topics you'd also like to to uh, hear me talk about, or you have any questions in particular that you want me to talk about. Um, you can find us on uh, Twitter, obviously, at Excelisys, that's A-X-E-L-I-S-Y-S, um, or Facebook.com, um, slash Excelisys, or even follow um, some of our behind-the-scenes stuff on Instagram, where again, it's Instagram.com, slash Excelisys, um, though I appreciate a lot of the stuff you might see at the moment is pictures of um, houses, balconies, and other bits of walking that we might do for our exercise. Um, but yeah, um, if you have, obviously, if you want to kind of talk about any requirements you guys have, or any other um, interesting things that you've seen in news that you want us to cover, or any Reddit chats you might want to to, um, drop us a note on, then obviously feel free to do that as well. Um, And finally, again, thanks very much to Jonathan for for, uh, setting this challenge. Um, I'm hoping he does something similar again in the future, because actually this was quite a lot of fun. Now, I do give talks every so often, uh, but it's it's not a a regular thing for me. Um, But, yeah, so um, I hope that was... was, um, enjoyable and I look forward, I think, to um, seeing you guys next time. Um, Jonathan, I suppose it's over to you at 28 and 36. Obviously, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you think it's any good and you can um, have a great day.